And uh, now I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Dan Breen, a scholar of law and American history. Since 2015, he's been senior lecturer in legal studies and an award-winning teacher at Brandeis University. He offers a class on Supreme Court Justice uh, Brandeis, in fact, as well as courses on business law, constitutional rights, and science on trial. Uh, Dan grew up in Atlanta, received his law degree from the University of Georgia, and completed a doctorate in U.S. history at Boston University. He participates in the Quill Project, a digital humanities initiative at Pembroke College, Oxford University. Uh, he, um, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dan for his Athenaeum author feature, which you can see on our website. The current month is always on the main page in the slideshow. Uh, and then you can see past authors under the heading library and in the section book recommendations. Uh, and if you know any authors that you think we ought to feature, please let one of us know we maintain a list. Um, I think uh, you will really enjoy hearing about the unguilty pleasures he talked about here at the Athenaeum and that many of you share his um, opinions on that. Today, Dan is going to give us a fascinating talk about a hard-to-like but easier-to-admire person, our own first librarian, William Smith Shaw. Um, no one did more to keep the fledgling institution alive than he, and Dan is here to tell us about the unkempt bibliomaniac of Tremont Street. Thank you. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, can you uh, hear me okay if I speak just like that? Okay. Well, it's uh, delightful to see you all. Uh, and uh, today I would like to introduce you, especially if you don't know much about William Shaw, to this fascinating personality who, to me, more than anybody else, deserves to be thought of as uh, the genuine founder of the Boston Athenaeum, may maybe more than any one single personality. Uh, he was born in the summer of 1778 in the village of Haverhill, uh, a mere five years after a tornado had gone right through Haverhill and destroyed the entire place. Uh, it was so severe that a group of residents that took shelter in the biggest barn they could find uh, were out of luck because the barn was blown right over them three miles down the Merrimack River. Uh, almost everything was destroyed, but luckily, uh, before too long, the reverend of the town, John Shaw, managed to rebuild the parsonage, and uh, that is where William Shaw was born in the summer of 1778. Uh, his father was the uh, minister, and his, uh, in the year before, uh, uh, William Shaw was born. His father had married uh, Elizabeth S Smith, who is uh, uh, well known as the sister of her more famous sister, uh, Abigail Smith Adams. Uh, she looked just like Abigail Smith Adams, just as opinionated as Abigail, Abigail Smith Adams, and also fully as brilliant as Abigail Smith Adams. Uh, William Shaw, always known in the family as Billy, uh, came along a year after they were married. Uh, he was very bookish from an early age. His mother and his father were great readers, so there's no surprise in that. Uh, and we find him, based upon the account of his brother-in-law, uh, at three years old, walking around the parsonage as just a, a young type, muttering over and over again, my book in heart shall never part, my book in heart shall never part. Uh, but I would say his habits of voracious reading were helped along by the fact that one day while he was playing in the yard, uh, he happened to step in a hole uh, where a fence had been, uh, and the hole had not yet been, been filled, and that left him badly injured and in fact lame for life. So he was never going to be suited uh, for a particularly active life, uh, probably because of this accident, and that left him uh, all the more willing and uh, all the more likely to be reading a great deal. And I think it may well be that none of us would be here this afternoon were it not for that little unfilled fence post hole in the little parsonage at Haverhill. 
Now, the uh, Haverhill of his youth, uh, here's a picture of what, uh, what it looked like, was a, a fairly calm place, but now and then it could be fairly thrilling as well. In the fall of 1789, when Billy was only 11 years old, President George Washington made his famous tour of the United States. He had started out in New York City, uh, then the capital, and he got as far north as Portsmouth before then turning down south. And then the big question was, where was he going to cross the Merrimack River? Nobody quite knew. It might have been Chelmsford off to the west, or it might be Haverhill. Until the last minute, nobody knew where he was going to cross the Merrimack. And then, all of a sudden, somebody rode into town on horseback, holding his reins with the right and with his left hand, making a little trumpet like this, shouting to everybody at Haverhill, the president is coming, the president is coming. And now everybody went a little bit nuts, and they all gathered at Herod's Tavern, which is where George Washington was sure to stay. Uh, and there, sure enough, Washington came, came riding through uh, down Merrimack Street uh, towards Herod's Tavern, to the delight of all assembled. And, uh, of course, he said, Haverhill is the pleasantest village I have passed through. Uh, the place where he stopped by Herod's Tavern, tavern uh, to this day has always been called Washington Square. Those of you who know Haverhill have been to Washington Square. Now, we know that the Reverend Shaw went to see him at Harrods, uh, and we know Mrs. Shaw was there, too. I'm pretty sure Billy was there. Where else would he be at 11 years old, unless he was down uh, visiting Abigail in Braintree? Uh, but I suspect he was there, too. And one reason I'm pretty sure of that is his 8-year-old sister, Betsy, was there, who received what I regard as the dubious honor of being asked by the president to mend his glove. Uh, and that is why John Greenleaf Whittier, a famous son of Haverhill, uh, wrote a poem about this visit. And that's why Whittier said of Washington's statements about Haverhill, slowly with his ungloved hand, Washington said, I have seen no prospect fairer in this goodly eastern land. And it is poignant, perhaps, to recall that when Washington died 10 years later, in 1799, it, is it, it, uh, it was the 21-year-old William Shaw who would take the official condolence letter of his uncle John Adams to the widowed Martha at Mount Vernon. Now, when Billy was 16, uh, the story goes, this is just one version of the story uh, that I happen to like, so this is the one you're going to hear. Uh, when Billy was 16, uh, his father, John Shaw, the Reverend, died all of a sudden. And the very morning of his death, Elizabeth and uh, the Reverend Shaw have been talking to an old friend of uh, Elizabeth Smith Shaw, uh, the Reverend Stephen Peabody, who was recently widowed and wanted advice about what kind of a wife he should now seek uh, based upon uh, his new status uh, as a widow, wid widower. And uh, with great courtesy, uh, Stephen Peabody assured Elizabeth, if I could find anybody to marry, I would want her to be just like you. And then after that, he rode off towards Newberry, where apparently he had heard that somebody just like her was living. <laughs> and then later that day, Tragically, John Shaw died. Now, when the Reverend Stevens Peabody heard the news in Newberry, he turned the horse around, uh, went down to Haverhill, offered his sincere condolences, actually conducted the funeral sermon uh, over poor Reverend John Shaw. And then, after a decent interval, he visited Elizabeth and, and asked for her hand in marriage, uh, about two hours ahead of one of her cousins, who was about to do the same thing. And uh, Elizabeth uh, agreed to the, to the match, and that meant they were going to move to Atkinson, New Hampshire, uh, six, year, uh, six miles from Haverhill, just across the New Hampshire border, where he had a fine house in a parish. And that's where, I'm afraid, we're going to have to leave uh, the Reverend Stephen Peabody uh, for the time being, uh, where he's going to settle in with Elizabeth and Atkinson. But I did want to point out, before I go any further, that uh, the one thing that Stephen Peabody liked to do even more than preach was to sing. He was singing all the time. I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing for Elizabeth, but he was singing all the time. And he loved to sing 
so much that he taught his dog to sing with him. And so now and then, they would have little duets at the church. Stephen Peabody and the dog would have nice duets. Uh, in the congregation, uh, presumably, would enjoy it. Uh, and that's uh, enough about Stephen Peabody for the time being. Uh, now, at the age of 16, uh, now that uh, Stephen Peabody and his mother were up in Atkinson, uh, it was time for Billy Shaw to try to figure out what he was going to do. Uh, and the answer, at least for the time being, was obvious. He was going to go off to Harvard. Uh, he never went back to Haverhill, uh, although I am pleased to say that in 2016, William Shaw, our founding librarian, was named a member of the Haverhill Hall of Fame, uh, putting him in the company of Bob Montana, creator of the Archie comic strips. Now, it was always something of a risk to send your son off to Harvard at that time. Uh, only three years before Willie, William Shaw got there in, uh, in 1794, uh, only in 1791, in an effort to put a stop to the hated policy whereby all underclassmen had to take uh, a year-end examination uh, given to them by the overseers of the college, uh, a, a bunch of the undergraduates decided to put a stop to that by putting a very powerful emetic in the copper basin that held the water that was going to be served along with the breakfast the morning of the exams. Uh, the results were predictable. A truly terrifying bout of loud physical expulsions of one form or another, uh, with the perpetrators, I think very wisely, making sure that they ate more of the breakfast than anybody else, so they'd be sicker than anybody else. So how could it have been those people who did it? Uh, well, they didn't get away with that. Uh, they were caught uh, in the exams went on as scheduled, uh, although it could not have been a pleasant experience for anybody. Uh, and, of course, there were the usual temptations associated with proximity to Cambridge in Boston uh, if you went to Harvard. And if you let them get the better of you and you didn't take proper care of your studies, chances were you might be... Uh, uh, what's called rusticated. Some of you may know about the rustication tradition, but what, what would happen is if you couldn't keep up with your studies at Harvard, uh, they would send you off into the hinterlands to complete your study with some local parson somewhere, and uh, nobody much liked to be rusticated. Uh, that was the sort of thing you avoided if you possibly could. And, and while William Shaw was there, one unfortunate undergraduate greeted his own rustication, uh, which was announced publicly in the college chapel, by standing up and yelling, it's a damned lie, you're a pack of devils, all of you, and I despise you. But I'm glad to say Shaw would not be rusticated. He would spend four years at Harvard, graduating with the class of 1798, at a time when political tensions in the United States were so high, divided as we were between Federalists and Jeffersonian Republicans, that the college barred all sentiments at commencement that could be construed in any way as political. Now, chafing under this restriction, the class speaker, William Ellery Channing, almost refused to take his degree at all. And even though he relented, he ended his oration as the class speaker by cutting his remarks short, looking about the assembled throng at Harvard Yard and saying, but that I am forbid, I could a tale unfold which would harrow up all your souls. Quoting King Hamlet's ghost. And for this he was cheered without reserve by his fellow classmates on the yard. But missing in the crowd, that commencement day in 1798, was a young man who should have graduated that year, but on principle refused to do so a man whose acquaintance would prove to be the single most important fact of William Shaw's life. And his name was Arthur Maynard Walter, a Bostonian two years younger than Shaw, and like him, the son of a clergyman. Walter, who happened to be one of the first secretaries of the Hasty Pudding Society, was a fervent Federalist, just as William Shaw was, uh, like almost all Harvard undergraduates were, for that matter, including, uh, including most of Shaw's family. But when Channing gave his oration, he was looking out at a sea of hats with the black cockade of federalism on them. 
And Walter was also every bit as bookish as Shaw. And it was through the shared love of books that Shaw and Walter would recognize each other as kindred spirits in the most deep sense. They would forge between themselves, based upon a shared love of learning in books, the most intense of bonds, a self-conscious, almost desperate kind of friendship. And I say self-conscious because they both understood friendship as an ongoing, evolving relationship by which that very relationship would elevate the tastes, the virtues, and the sensibilities of both. And listen to Walter uh, as he describes this bond he had with Shaw. And this is a letter uh, quoted by Catherine Wolfe in her very fine book, Culture Club, in which she writes movingly and very well about the friendship of Shaw and Walter and how that was crucial to seeing how the, the Athenaeum came to be. Uh, and this is one of those letters. This is uh, uh, Walter talking. What secured the embryo of our friendship was sympathy of nature, giving a finishing stroke to our sentiments and making a friendship as perfect as human nature must allow. And we must imagine them, Shaw and Walter, in the fading light at the end of a day of lectures at Harvard, uh, maybe in a window seat looking over Harvard Yard, sharing a bowl of punch, reading aloud to each other from the essays of Bacon or Samuel Johnson, taking pleasure in each other's pleasure at the thoughts of those they read. Shaw called Walter my wild, random, laughter-loving Walter. And we are here because of that friendship. For from that bond sprang their decision when they were living in Boston five years later to take over a struggling periodical uh, along with William Emerson uh, called the Monthly Anthology. And it was that decision that led directly at the beginning of 1807 to the formation of the Boston Athenaeum. So whatever status that little hole in the ground in Haverhill might hold for our founding, there's no doubt about it that without that friendship, none of us would be here. But maybe we're getting a little ahead of, ahead of ourselves. Uh, Walter did not actually take that degree, as I said. He was so infuriated at the, at, the, at the strictures against any kind of political expression at commencement and also the role they were asking him to play at commencement that, that he wouldn't take the degree at all, ended up getting his degree at, at Columbia. And Shaw himself wasn't there either. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why, but, but here's what I think. Uh, it, it was almost exactly the same time that his boisterous, high-spirited sister Betsy, the apple of his mother's eye, died after a long, painful, and debilitating illness. And I believe Shaw was at his mother's side in Atkinson at the time of commencement. That, that's why he wasn't there. But he would soon move, Shaw would, to Philadelphia, where his family connections led to a very nice job as President John Adams, his uncle's uh, private secretary. And if anyone was ever wholly unsuited to politics, it was Billy Shaw, the last person in the world you would ever think would go into politics. Uh, but, but of course, he wasn't really. He was only secretary to John Adams. Uh, he would have been, but he would have been temperamentally unfit uh, under any circumstances to, to, to seek votes, seek compromise, or do any of the things uh, you would expect of a politician. And if anything, his experience at Uncle John's side only confirmed his growing suspicions of democracy. Now, for one thing, he strongly approved of the Sedition Act, which, among other things, made it a federal offense to write, utter, and publish any false, scandalous, or malicious statement about the president with a view towards bringing the president into contempt or disrepute. A strong blow against the freedom of the press was the Sedition Act, but William Shaw thought it didn't go far enough. And here's what he said to Aunt Abigail. I cannot conceive of a government long existing without laws restricting the licentiousness of the press. Our modern Jacobins know this. They know that the liberty of the press, as they call it, is a lever for overturning the social order of the world. 
after reading one newspaper article that dared to wish for peace between America and France, the very policy his Uncle John would eventually pursue. Shaw bewailed, would that I were a dog so I would not have to call man my brother. And not surprisingly, he opposed immigration. Like his idol, Massachusetts Senator Harrison Gray Otis, uh, Shaw disparaged uh, what Otis had called wild Irishmen who were beginning to arrive here in somewhat greater numbers by the turn of the century, and he insisted that all our troubles had to do with hordes of foreigners. Let us, like the silkworm, Shaw said, in what I think is a rather unfortunate simile, let us, like the silkworm, weave the web from our own bowels, leaving Europeans in their vices to themselves. The French, he called, the most abandoned and unprincipled beings on God's earth. Although, if anything, Jefferson and Madison and their fellow Democratic Republicans were worse. A class of men, Shaw wrote, again to Aunt Abigail, who was quite receptive to this sort of thing, a class of men entirely destitute of moral principle whose lives are spent in the prostitution of their talents to the perversion of reason, and whose unceasing efforts are to mislead the public mind and bid defiance to all laws, human and divine. Albert Gallatin, who would eventually be Jefferson's Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin, Shaw thought, no better than Richard III, ignoring the fact that, as far as we know, Gallatin never killed his nephews. <laughs> Not for Shaw, the tumults and com compromises of public life, the appeals to a public less learned, and he felt less virtuous than he. Nothing much seems ever to have interested him, for that matter, than books, other than books. Reading, that's what he liked, and talking about reading, preferably over one, maybe more than one, bowl of punch with Arthur Walter. But luckily, he would soon be united with his great friend in the town of Boston, where, in the wake of Adams's defeat at Jefferson's hands in 1800, he would move to begin to study law. And if you'd like to know how the uh, Federalists thought of their defeat at Jefferson's hands in 1800, uh, put yourself in the position of the dinosaurs when the asteroid started to come down. That's, a, that's pretty much uh, how they felt about it. Uh, so Shaw would undertake the study of law, uh, beginning in 1801, with uh, William Sullivan uh, in, in the town of Boston. A thoroughgoing Federalist, William Sullivan lived for most of his career in aristocratic grandeur uh, on Chestnut Street in the brand new neighborhood of Beacon Hill in a house furnished and in in essentially given to him uh, by his mother-in-law, Hepzibah Swan. And Sullivan associated very easily with the merchant elite of the town, useful guy to know. Uh, as did another lawyer, Samuel Dexter, whose office Arthur Walter was going to study in, uh, not too far away. Yet Shaw was just as unsuited to be a lawyer as he was to be a politician. Unlike Dexter, whose gigantic powers of oratory could move any assemblage to tears, Shaw had no interest in public speaking of any sort. And he would never have Solomon's attention to those minute details that with the proper reference to the dry common law tomes of Foster, East, Blackston, and Hale might make all the difference in a commercial dispute. In fact, Shaw had no particular aptitude or liking for the law. He didn't dress well anyway, he made a poor figure for himself. He's not going to inspire confidence among merchants doing that. And he would not be the first nor the last person to go into the profession because he had no idea what else to do a fact that worried his mother to distraction up in Atkinson. But at least he was in Boston, and at least, as we'll see, he was close to Walter. 
But I think had he gone on to practice full time, he would have looked forward to very little success in the town of Boston, uh, a place where giants of the law were already treading State Street. People like Samuel Dexter, people like William Sullivan, uh, Harrison Gray Otis, Christopher Gore, and above all, the brilliant Theophilus Parsons, future president of the Athenaeum, who not only improvised elaborations on Euclid's geometry in his spare time, but was literally called the giant of the law. Now, how far could Shaw go in a profession that promised to bore him in the first place uh, and in the company of lawyers with whom he could not very well compete? So I think for him, by 1804, the outlook was dismal. He was about ready to, to sit for the bar. He, he had no particular aptitude for this. What was he going to do? But luckily, he had considerable consolations. Above all, the company of Walter and also his other great friend, uh, Joseph Buckminster, the estimable Joseph Buckminster, lately installed as the pastor at the Brattle Street Church. But there was also the monthly anthology. And what the chance to help edit that offered to Shaw, probably Walter too, was a way to do two things they devoutly wished to do. As they read and edited manuscript submissions from fellow Bostonians and correspondents around the country, they could continue to associate with one another regularly in evenings as convivial and enlightening as their treasured days back at Harvard. And furthermore, it gave them a chance, both of them, Walter and Shaw, to, uh, to do something they had not had before. This was something they, they hadn't acquired, a role to play in a new republic that on the whole was beginning to discard the fidelity to order in class hierarchies that their fellow Federalists so cherished. The anthology would be a way to elevate the taste, perhaps, of Shaw's benighted fellow Americans, to accustom them to habits of critical judgment, and in the process, perhaps, to save the country from the Jacobinism that the two reluctant young lawyers most feared from Jefferson and his party. America, Shaw said, might yet rescue herself by cultivating the national mind rather than receiving or, or reserving all its efforts to the pursuit of gain. And no wonder they approached their editorial tasks with such enthusiasm. And no wonder as they gathered about them uh, fellow literateurs, uh, a circle that they came to call the Anthology Club, uh, no wonder that uh, fashionable houses all over Boston would never have a party when the Anthology Club was meeting because there would be no entertaining young men to go. So here, I think was something for him to do, something for him to care about, uh, as of 1805 at least. And in addition to that, Boston was a generally fine place to be uh, in 1804 and 1805, if you had a little bit of money at least. Stately elm trees shaded the homes of the West End in a town that still only had about 25,000 people, where the scent of lilacs caught the summer breezes. And on warm nights, you would stroll down the tree-lined mall on the edge of the common along Tremont Street, where a glance over your shoulder revealed the green hills of Brookline over the Back Bay marshes. And when Shaw grew bored in his office on Tremont Street, uh, as he very often did, uh, he had only to walk around the corner and look up and see the beautiful green mansion on Pemberton Hill, uh, right across the street from the Athenaeum, uh, where the, the courthouse is now, home to one of the most beautiful gardens in North America, and if the day was particularly fine, you might walk down Washington Street through the old South End to the South Boston Bridge, which connected the uh, South Station neighborhood to the old thin Boston Neck. And from there, you could get a panoramic view of the town of Boston and also behind you the Harbor Islands, a view so beautiful that young couples would stroll there of a summer evening, uh, enjoy each other's company, and that's why it was called the Bridge of Sighs. 
Or if you felt like company and you were William Shaw, you might walk down to the old concert hall on Hanover Street, unofficial Federalist headquarters of the town of Boston, where along with Walter and other young professionals, uh, you might rail against the latest Jeffersonian outrage over pints of ale and maybe watch Mr. Randy's famous trained fish, which would pick out whatever card you might have chosen from a deck of 52. And as if all that wasn't promising enough, in 1806, a great piece of luck sped its way in Shaw's direction. Judge John Davis of the United States District Court, a man chiefly known today as the first person to refer to the 1620 settlers as Pilgrim Fathers, Judge John Davis needed a clerk. And probably, I think, through the efforts of Shaw's relative William Cranch, another cousin of his, he got the job. Now, it's impossible to overestimate what that meant to William Shaw. Here was an undemanding job a source of income that didn't require much of him, thus leaving him free to devote as much time as he liked to his beloved monthly anthology. The fates were now, by 1806, smiling on Billy Shaw as never before. And it was in this, perhaps the happiest year of his life, that he and Walter began their efforts to establish a reading room. Somewhere down the street, the Scully Buildings was now Government Center, where any subscriber could go and read the latest newspapers and journals and peruse a selection of fine books. Their monthly anthology reading room, of course, the origin of the Boston Athenaeum. But the good times did not last. On January 1st, 1807, Shaw, Walter, and a selection of other trustees signed a prospectus for a state charter for their reading room which they now said should be called the Boston Athenaeum. That was January 1st. On January 2nd, 1807, Arthur Walter died of consumption. He was only 26. I need not tell you how much I loved him, Shaw wrote to Buckminster. There was no good I ever enjoyed. There was no pleasure I ever anticipated without which Walter was not intimately associated. In this, the darkest hour of his life, while, uh, Shaw's acquaintances in the Anthology Club did their best to comfort him. But there was one man in Boston that might have been a particular source of solace, someone with whom Shaw actually had a lot in common. Here, and here he is. James Sullivan was older than Shaw, but like Shaw, he had come to Boston from the hinterlands, in uh, Sullivan's case from South Berwick, Maine. And like Shaw, Sullivan had become lame at an early age, when he slipped just as a tree he was cutting down fell in just the wrong way and pinned his leg against another stump. Sullivan, like Shaw, knew what it was like to go through life with a disability, know that other people noticed it, and wonder how to behave in light of what they noticed. They, they had that, that crucial thing in common. Sullivan was also very bookish. He spent 10 years as the head of the Massachusetts Historical Society, a little more than 10 years, as a matter of fact. And James Sullivan knew all about grief, his wife had died all of a sudden just after Thanksgiving dinner one year. And in 1806, only two months before the official founding of the Athenaeum, James Sullivan's son, Bant Sullivan, came home in the afternoon, went upstairs, and distraught over an unrequited love, killed himself in his bedroom. He was the Attorney General of Massachusetts, James Sullivan was, a superb lawyer, and also one of the key figures of the economic development of the United States, not just Massachusetts, but the United States, for it was James Sullivan more than any other single person who gave us the Middlesex Canal, 
stretching from what was then uh, West Chelmsford in the, on the Merrimack down to what is now Boston Garden. The great engine of development that would make West Chelmsford into industrial Lowell and change Haverhill forever. There was every reason for Shaw and Sullivan to be close, to be friendly with one another. James Sullivan's son, William Sullivan, was Shaw's mentor in the law office. And uh, Walter and Shaw's classmate, Richard Sullivan, was also James Sullivan's son. And Joseph Buckminster was a friend of James Sullivan. They, they, they could have been, he could have been an intermediary between the two. This was a man, you can see this, a little bit of a sparkle in the eyes that Gilbert Stewart has shown us, that would have understood what Shaw was going through, would have provided help. But Shaw could not turn to James Sullivan because Sullivan was a Jeffersonian. And at his death, Walter had left Shaw his treasured volume of Cicero, including Cicero's essay on friendship. And there, Cicero says that we cannot be friends with someone we do not consider virtuous. And for a deeply dyed Federalist like Shaw, a Republican like Sullivan simply could not be virtuous. How could you be virtuous and vote for Jefferson? How could you be virtuous and be a Republican? And this was a time, remember, when Theodore Sedgwick could assure his daughter, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, that while all horse thieves were not Republicans, it was certainly true that all Republicans were horse thieves. No, it's the other way around. Uh, although all Republicans are not horse thieves, uh, all horse thieves are Republicans. And it was, this was also a time, and I, you, you can't see him now, but he's behind Cicero. He's usually not behind Cicero, but he is now. Uh, this was also a time when our own Thomas Handyside Perkins uh, would not permit a Republican in his house on Pearl Street unless they were delivering something, in which case they could go in the back. Sullivan was, by all accounts, a person of rare wit and charm. Again, look at the eyes. Uh, Gilbert Stewart and James Sullivan were, got along together pretty well, and, and you can tell a little bit from the portrait. A person of, of rare wit and charm. But none of that would have mattered to Shaw. It would all have been lost on him. In the universe of Boston politics, he simply could not be Shaw's friend. And so that acquaintance could not be made. And in the hour of crisis, the hour of Shaw's great crisis, it is not surprising that his spirit did not turn outward to seek the company of more people who might have helped. Rather, it turned inward into the work of increasing the collection of the Athenaeum. So to live with his grief, and Catherine Wolfe writes extremely well about all of this, to live with his grief and perhaps to establish an enduring memorial to Walter, Smith now, uh, uh, Shaw now threw himself into his responsibilities as first secretary and librarian of the Athenaeum, by now located, uh, or soon to be located, in the Amory House on Tremont Street, right next door to the King's Chapel burial ground. Uh, as Wolfe writes, made anxious by an ever more democratic America, Shaw had first cleaved to Walter, and he now cleaved to the Athenaeum. And over the next 15 years, he went from William Shaw to Athenaeum Shaw, the nickname by which he is often known. I'm a little bit jealous of that. Nobody calls me Brandeis Breen. Uh, but uh, he now came to be known as Athenaeum Shaw. And rightly so, for the institution that he and Walter had helped found now seemed to merge with his own personality. Uh, as one of the trustees said, the Athenaeum was now the exclusive object of William Shaw's thoughts. Not so much a desire, but a passion. In fact, Shaw merged his own book collection with the Athenaeums, and despite repeated requests from the trustees that he stopped doing that, he kept it up. And though his rheumatism was getting worse and worse as the years went on, Shaw, uh, Shaw now became the indefatigable solicitor of books and periodicals and items of curiosity that remains the most enduring image we have of him. It was in these years that the book-loving Shaw became the bibliomaniac Shaw.
And he now joins the ranks of people like Richard Heber, who eventually filled up eight separate houses with books and once remarked that all gentlemen needed free copies of every book, one for show, one for use, and one for borrowers. But I think he was somewhat better than the notorious Stephen Bloomberg, who some of you may have heard of, who stole in his lifetime 23,000 books from 280 libraries, justifying these questionable actions by thinking of these transactions as his own version of interlibrary loans. <laughs> Shaw was better than that, but he certainly was a bibliomaniac. Maybe though, for our purposes here today, it was all to the good. This institution would go on because Shaw did. At certain points in the dark years of the War of 1812, as the merchant elite of Boston began to suffer deep financial distress, as the pace of subscriptions slowed to the Athenaeum, as it became difficult to assemble a quorum for trustees' meetings, it is hard to see how this institution could have survived without the constant zeal with which Shaw added to the collection and took care of the premises. And it is during these years that we meet the Shaw again, whose image is in many of our minds, the Shaw with a coat with those extra pockets for whatever pamphlets he might confront as he walked the streets of Boston day to day. Uh, the wonderful tract collection up on the second floor, uh, that's mostly Shaw's legacy to the institution, among so much else. As Josiah Quincy would write, at this period, the efficiency in the very existence of the Athenaeum seemed to have been identified with Mr. Shaw. As both secretary and librarian, he occupied himself almost exclusively with collecting rare books and coins and relics of antiquity and bringing them under our roof. The collection went from 1,000 books in 1807 to well over 12,000 by 1824, uh, when Shaw was asked to leave the Athenaeum as a secretary and librarian. At no time in all those years did he ask for a salary. How could he? The Athenaeum was Shaw. Shaw was the Athenaeum. How can you pay yourself for being yourself? Simply for living. As he had written to Walter long ago, one should pursue objects in life solely for the sake of their virtue, not for what he called, quote, the fading and uncertain honors of this fading and uncertain world. Moreover, he spent at least $10,000 of his own money, spent out of his adequate but by no means extravagant salary as Judge Davis's clerk for books and tracts and coins, all of which, as noted before, he simply kept at the Athenaeum, all of which stayed with it when he died. And by the time of his death, in August of 1826, he had been relieved of his duties as librarian uh, and secretary, partly because of this persistent refusal to separate his own collections uh, from what's rightly the Athenaeums, but partly because he had no particular head for financing and accounting. He was falling behind on some of those duties, and partly because his health was so clearly deteriorating. Uh, the rheumatism never got any better. It just got worse. Uh, any time there was a change of season, it was pure hell for, for William Shaw, uh, and, and that continued to be, be the case and got worse uh, by the 1820s. As a consolation, the proprietors voted to pay Gilbert Stewart to compose the portrait that now resides next door. So let's go back to the portrait. There's William Shaw. Uh, he, he stares and makes people uncomfortable in the reader's room uh, every day. Uh, and here he is for you. I love this portrait for many reasons. Uh, but one of the main reasons is the book that is right to William Shaw's right. Uh, leaning against uh, a copy of the, the French Encyclopedia. But the book directly next to Shaw uh, is a volume of Guillaume-Francois de Béret's Bibliographie Instructive, 
uh, one of the very first categories, uh, one, one of the very first catalogs of rare books, compiled by a man who went to the Bastille rather than cooperate in a scheme to evade French copyrights. A man who saved untold thousands of books during the ravages of the French Revolution, an unsung hero of bibliophiles everywhere. Uh, and that's the book that, through all eternity, Shaw will rest next to. So the Athenaeum owes its existence to Shaw, which is to say that we were born in friendship. Two Harvard undergraduates who delighted in the sharing of the wisdom in the joy of books, and who continued to live out that love together in Federalist Boston. When Walter died, Shaw addresses despair by devoting himself unreservedly to this institution. And understandably, he looked inward and descended into bibliomania. But even as we celebrate and commemorate him, we need not follow this particular example. We need not, as I think Shaw did, like books in the end more than people. Can we not think of ourselves here at the Athenaeum as a society of friends, bound to each other, as Shaw and Walter were bound to each other, by our love of knowledge? And can we not do what Shaw could not do, take the light of that friendship out into a world fully as forbidding and selfish as it was in 1807, and engage with those we meet in a spirit of tolerance, good humor, and charity? Can we think of this beautiful place not as an oasis, but as a springboard. In our earliest days, a committee of early subscribers wrote that a love of intellectual improvement strengthens and multiplies the ties that bind men together. It is friendly to cheerfulness and the social virtues. Let us so dedicate ourselves in Shaw, in, Arthur's in Arthur Maynard Walter's memory, uh, to those words, both within and without these walls, to cheerfulness and the social virtues. Well, thank you.